to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, October 12th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. In today's text, the author of Hebrews brings up God's word from the Psalms to teach that Jesus is the high priest appointed by God, and he is the source of our eternal salvation. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks. Always a pleasure. So we get to look at part of Hebrews chapter 5 today. Pastor Johnson, give us some context. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text? Right. Oh, tons of stuff. I mean, you know how Hebrews is. It assumes that we know all sorts of things about the Old Testament and all sorts of things about, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the sacrificial system and whatnot. Um, maybe a, a quick overview so far of the book. You know, um, we've got this pattern of basically looking at all the Old Testament things, uh, the fancy people call them types, and how Jesus fulfills those. You know, he's the bigger and better version of all these things. And so, you know, we, we've already had the angels and the Torah and how Jesus is, he's the better version of those. Um, and then we had Moses in the promised land and Jesus himself, of course, is superior to Moses and he himself is the, the true promised land, not the temporary one. So now we're making a shift uh, into the priesthood and eventually the sacrifices that go along with that. And so um, we're going to hear how Jesus is indeed, uh, you know, the great high priest. And so it's going to be, once again, this constant comparison. What was old and now what's new? How is Jesus like, but how is he also superior? So we want to be watching for that. Um, I think we should probably also keep in mind two of the purposes of the book of Hebrews that the uh, the author is trying to um, trying to accomplish not only that Jesus is this bigger better version that's the first thing but also these are all encouragements to the reader and they should also be to us as well um, because there seems to be some hints that uh, that whoever uh, the author was writing to are probably enduring some kind of persecution like a lot of the Christians in the New Testament were and, uh, and so we too can take great encouragement from that as well, that these are not, the, the point is, is that I'm getting at is all of this is a lot of things about the nature and character of Jesus, which we call Christology, um, which can easily sound really abstract and sort of academic, but we want to make sure that it doesn't end up or uh, that it doesn't stay there um, because it's still uh, tremendously uh, valuable and um, encouraging to all of us. So probably the one final thing to say um, before we actually get into this is talk maybe just a little bit about the priesthood and um, what it means to be a mediator, because that's fundamentally what the priest really was. Um, and I guess here's how I'd like to summarize it. Um, let's jump to the so what question, right? Jesus is a mediator, big deal, so what? Well, it's very simple. 
we all need a mediator um, because estrangement calls for a mediator. You know, we we recognize this when, um, you know, kind of in secular society, when two parties are at each other's throats, you know, like when you're, we were just talking about our kids a little bit ago. And, uh, and when our kids are fighting with each other, right, we need somebody who's a third party, you know, in order to help broker that, uh, you know, in between. And so likewise, um, the, how would I put this? The, the reason, the reason for a mediator is sort of writ large all across the Bible. Uh, when we look back at, especially like the first three chapters of Genesis, we didn't need a mediator until uh, the fall came along. And that's where it really enters into this, this grand scope of the, uh, the story of salvation, is that when we were estranged from God, or maybe what I should say is when we estranged ourselves from God, um, and when we got ourselves evicted out of the garden, um, it calls for a mediator. We're now separated. I mean, and we saw that manifest with the angel, of course, with the flaming sword guarding the way. We can't go back to where we were. And so now we need somebody to broker broker in between us. We need somebody to be a go-between, someone who's for us in our place. And that's ultimately what the priests all pointed to. And, okay, let the cat out of the bag. This is not, not going to shock anybody. But ultimately who Jesus really is. So, um... So that's our necessity really for a, uh, a mediator. And um, what that does really is if we've got a mediator, we are invited into the very presence of God, which, you know, we wouldn't have been able to access otherwise. Right. And right. That's where that's where chapter four ended was the right. thought that we can now access God. We have this access to the throne room. We can go there because Jesus is our great high priest. So he's going to keep developing that theme as we move into chapter five here. Uh, what are some of the things we're going to see about the Old Testament priesthood that will be compared and contrasted to Christ just by way of preview for this text? Um, sure. We, we've got um, the fact his ordination, you know, in other words, he's specifically he's selected out from a group of, of other individuals. In other words, he, it's, he doesn't apply for this. You know, there's no, um, <laughs> you know, there's no job fair for priests. You know, they get selected and appointed to this. They're also, put very simply, they're also men. They're, they are men who actually need, and this is where it's actually going to be both similar and different, as we'll see, men who need to be atoned for. Now, this is, of course, where Jesus is different. Um, but then also there's a matter of being temporal versus eternal. And then, of course, finally, there's the uh, probably the most obvious, uh, the role of the priest is to offer sacrifices on behalf of those they represent. And that's really the primary mediatorial role. That's going to be yeah. the big thing. All right. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the text. This is Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is our text for today. That's Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. So, Pastor Johnson, as this text begins, the author of Hebrews begins to, to tell us a little bit, remind us about some of the things we learned in, in the book of Leviticus, which we just studied here on Sharper Iron prior to this book, a little bit about the high priest. Then, and especially here in first, verse 1, he highlights that the high priest is chosen from among men, and his job is to act on behalf of men. Talk about this this role of the priest. Yeah, I mean, that is the mediator role right there. He's he's a go-between. He's from men. And so he's kind of got like one foot in both worlds. He's indeed from men, meaning that he's, well, he's just a human being. He's not an angel. You know, he's not, you know, some other, uh, some other kind of creature. He's actually from men. And what's kind of implied there, which I think the readers would pick up on, is that, um... To represent men, you got to be a man, right? You got to be one of them, uh, you know. But also that he would act on behalf of men. That, that this is a this is kind of a substitutionary role, and I think it's very interesting. This is very much um, the same way that um, Jesus. Uh, in fact, it uses the same preposition Jesus himself uses in the uh, the words institution when he says, "Given and shed for you." That is in behalf of you. Um, so same word. And, um, so really the high priest is, you know, bridges those worlds, the world of man and the world of God, um, you know, and himself through his offerings and gifts becomes that bridge to bring people back to God. And so of course, in even his role is specified here, um, you know, offer gifts and sacrifices. And so there's certain things that are classified as offerings, but other things which are sacrifices and sacrifices specifically are the ones that are, you know, to basically pay for the sins, blood for blood, life for life, so that the people can actually come back. And obviously what we would already know from Leviticus, which is implied in all this, is that there's no coming back to God unless you're, you know, unless your debts are paid. So, so Yeah. So, and, and the, the two things that are mentioned then, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, there's a number of things that the priests were appointed to do, but the thought of, of being this mediator, the one who's going to offer sacrifices for the sake of atonement, that seems to be especially what's emphasized here at the, the outset of this text. Right. Right. Yeah. So, okay, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Then he elaborates a little bit. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Again, we're talking about the Israelite high priest here. What's the importance of being able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward? Right. I actually think this is, it seems like quite a transition in my mind because, you know, it doesn't, those things don't seem self-evident, at least not to, not to myself anyway. That okay, well, you can go ahead and you can offer the sacrifices. You can do all these things. Do you really need to be able to uh, to uh, to understand or at least can deal gently? I think we probably should understand this dealing gently. This isn't exactly the same thing as sympathy. Um, it, so this isn't. We don't want to overly psychologize this, where this is a matter of you know the priest is saying, "Oh, I understand exactly what you're going through" or something like that. That's not what he's getting at. It's that, um, that, that the priest can actually deal with the person who's bringing the sacrifice rather than, you know, slapping him around and saying like, hey, hey, you moron, you know, just, you just need to, uh, to, 
you know, straighten up and fly right, that he can offer these sacrifices fully knowing that the same weakness that besets this person, you know, you know, Joe sacrificer, um, is the same weakness that, that he himself, um, has beset him. And, and if I can take that just for a second, a little bit of an aside, I think that's something which speaks profoundly to the, to the office of the pastoral ministry, uh, for us as well, because, um, you know, every time you hear, maybe you probably had this experience every time you're, you hear confession, um, you can't help but be reminded um, that you too are one who needs to confess. Not that the confessional turns into this mutual like, oh, and I'm really terrible too, but that you never get away from that. You never, in other words, you never, a pastor should never hear confession from a position of superiority. And I think that's very much kind of what, um, what this is getting at as well. So he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And I think what's also implied here is that this is ignorant and wayward, not just in a general sense, but ignorant about one's sins or wayward um, in the sense that these are not people who are like, um, you know, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't worry, I can go and offer a sacrifice. And so that, um, you know, so I can clean up all my messes. These are people who actually repented of it. I think that's what's sort of being implied. Sure, so. and I mean, in the book of Leviticus, especially I'm thinking about chapters 4 and 5 with the, the sin offerings that are listed there, it was repeated almost every time that these were the sins that were committed unintentionally. Right. So the thought of the, the ignorant the, and the wayward there, I think it fits well. Uh, yeah, so that the, the high priest, is, as he is you know, receiving these animals or they're brought to him to, to make these sacrifices, and, and he hears perhaps the story from those bringing the sacrifice, he could, he's sitting there thinking, yeah, I, I can see how you, you ended up doing that because I could see myself doing that too. I have that, that yeah. same weakness. Now, and this maybe jumps a little bit ahead into the, the part where it talks more about Christ. Yeah, I think you're going to ask what I'm thinking. Go ahead. <laughs> but, but so Christ, how, how, does the, how does this become true of Christ or how does he uh, supersede this one? Right. Yeah, I really str- I'm just going to be right up front with it. I really struggled with this because I think there's some ways in which we can actually see that there are both similarities and differences. But I mean, that's going to be typical here because um, as we're going to see, for example, um, we're going to see that he does not fit one-to-one with all of these high priesthoods. I mean, you know, for example, the text even will tell us he comes from a, um, a different priesthood entirely. Even though he's a high priest, he's of the order of Melchizedek, not the order of uh, Aaron. So we're all... Now we've totally blown it, haven't we? You know, we've jumped all way ahead. But I mean, I think the one thing we can definitely say is going back to verse one, that he's chosen from among men, that, I mean, Christ takes on human flesh. And this is not an appearance, right? We're not all docetists. Um, that uh, this is, that he actually does take on, in one sense, human weakness, and yet, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, is yet without sin. And so we've got to be able to play both, um, I mean, I shouldn't say play both sides, but to keep that tension, that that whatever weakness Jesus experiences, which we do see in his own flesh, in the sense that, you know, right, he gets tired, he gets hungry, um, you know, he's disappointed and all these other things, and yet these are not necessarily weaknesses of sin where he needs to atone for his own sin. So, so it's... Um, it's not a weakness that needs to be atoned for, but it is a weakness, um, you know, according to his human nature, though. And so, and I think that is, in the end, is very comforting to us, um, you know, because we know at least in that regard, um, you know, it's going to sound cliche, but it's not like Jesus is some kind of Superman and doesn't know 
uh, doesn't have any inkling about the temptations we face, even if he himself didn't give into them. Right, and that was, again, part of the point at the end of the last chapter, which you, you've already quoted, that he was without sin. And yet, at the same time, he was like us in every respect. So he, he knows precisely what it is to deal with the, the human weakness, the, the suffering that we experience all the way from his conception to death. All of this Jesus has experienced in our flesh. And so he can then still deal gently with us, not because he has sinned personally, but rather because he is a, a human being just like us. So how do we how do we see that, Christ dealing gently with the ignorant and the wayward, even when he is not ignorant or wayward? Right, right. I think we've got loads of good examples. I mean, yes, we have experiences to the contrary when he excoriates the religious leaders, but we have tons of examples in the New Testament where he deals really gently with people. You know, like if you remember the guy who um, they, they dig a hole in the roof, they let him down and, uh, you know, you know, he doesn't excoriate the guy. He doesn't say, Hey, you idiot. Um, he actually says, you know, son, your sins are forgiven. And then of course he goes on to heal him as well. Or like the woman, um, you kind of, it, it's great because the way that the text reads with a woman with a flow of blood, she's the one who like tugs on his, you know, tugs on his cloak in order to get healed. And he turns around and you're kind of expecting this really harsh answer from him, but he really says, you know, go in peace, right? Or even how he, he picks up the children or, and there's so many, even with the disciples as, you know, as, as uh, buffoonish as they often are, they, um, he, you know, he, he is remarkably, remarkably patient with them. And I mean, I think that's one of the places where it's also encouraging. I can imagine the people um, in the, you know, um, who originally first heard this epistle saying, oh, he's going to be patient with me too. And I think that's exactly the kind of application we can have for ourselves. And so, yeah, um, yeah we don't have to, um, we can be thankful that he's not going to throw the book at us when we, uh, when we look at the mountain of our own sins. Right, and so this is, and this is a, a function then of, of the fact that he is a human being just like us. Not only, and this is, I'm just thinking about this right now. You know, in the in the Old Testament, we we hear multiple times that the Lord is is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So according to his divinity, Jesus is gentle, I suppose, with the ignorant and the wayward. But here, especially according to his humanity as well. He is, he is gentle with the ignorant and wayward. I mean, both in his divinity and his humanity, this is who he is through and through. Right. No, that's, that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful connection because we know uh, right that uh, uh, with God there is plentiful forgiveness, but even, uh, you know, as, and, and, you know, even God incarnate himself doesn't change that character yeah. either. Yeah, and if, if anything, I suppose it, it only rubber stamps it all the more, that you can be—how you know, how do I know that God will continue to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, overflowing right. in pardon? It's because he's become a man for me, to be this this perfect right. high priest in my place. It, it only adds to the certainty that we have that that's who God is. Right, yeah. right. Well said. Yeah. So, okay, so then in, in verse 3, uh, this kind of really flows from verse 2 as well, speaking about the Israelite high priest in particular. Because of this, him being beset with weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Again, help us with the, uh, remind us of the Old Testament context we need to know about, about that verse. Right. Uh, Leviticus 8 comes to mind that, um, you know, before the priest could step in, and, uh, and offer any kind of sacrifices, they needed to have their own sins taken care of. And it was actually, it was quite, it was sort of above and beyond what all the other uh, 
what all the other Israelites would have experienced. Um, in fact, I was actually just preaching on this recently about um, how they have to stay in the tabernacle an entire week. You know, they're, they're, um, they offer these, these bulls and rams and they, they uh, all their, like, it's all their body parts get touched with blood, you know, put blood on their earlobes because they hear the word of God. They, they put blood on their toes because they're going to walk in the holy places. They put a blood on the thumbs because they're going to touch the holy things of God. And so there's no way they can approach God without having this blood covering their sins. But for them, it's even more, um, it's even more extreme than the rest of, of Israel. Seven days, a whole week. And I think there's probably a connection here to actually creation that is a new creation where they come back into the, um, uh, into the presence of God. They can approach him sort of even as Adam and Eve first did after the seven days of creation. So I... I think I'm probably right about that one. I'm not positive. Uh, but but the point being is that um, they have to have their sins atoned for first before they can go about anywhere else. Now, of course, you're probably your next question is like, well, wait a minute, but does Jesus do that? No, he doesn't have to. This is one of the clear places where this is where uh, one of these things is not like the other, right? The high priest does not exactly correspond to the, um, you know, to Jesus. Uh, Jesus doesn't have to do that for himself. Well, and, and if anything, the the way that the high priest functions in the Old Testament, and I think the, the writer of Hebrews probably brings this up later more specifically, the, the way the high priest has to go through all of this for himself continually throughout the Old Testament points to the need for someone who won't have to do that. Right. For, for that high priest that is perfect, that doesn't have to have the blood cover him for his sins first, that, that constant, as you described the ordination that happens in Leviticus 8, the ordination that happens afterwards for, for the successors of Aaron, every time you see that, you're like, man, when, when is the one going to get here who doesn't have to have this happen? Right, right, right. I mean, that's exactly the image I had in my mind. I'm imagining this, like this, this priest, you know, still serving, at, uh, you know, uh, offering these sacrifices. And you kind of imagine like the thought, the cartoon thought bubble going over had like, man, when is this going to be over? And, uh, and, and the answer is Jesus. Right, that's right. And, and that's where this, this section really serves to introduce a longer thought in this, in this letter, this sermon of, of the book of Hebrews that will be continued to, to be developed over the, the coming chapters that Jesus is this high priest. Yeah, so who, re remind me not to steal anybody's thunder in advance. That's fine, that's all right. This, this is setting the stage for what's coming as this, as this epistle continues. So again, verse 3, that's going to be something that Jesus... He does not have to offer sacrifice for his own sins, as the high priest from the line of Aaron did. Now, one more thought here in verse 4 about the Aaronic high priesthood, and, and this was hinted at in the first verse, is that this is an, not an honor that you take for yourself. As you said earlier, it's not something where you submit your resume, but rather it's something that God appoints, God calls. Talk about verse 4. Right. This is a really critically important point. And actually, I think has a lot of applications both to the Christians more broadly and, and also the priests. But um, the Lord makes this abundantly clear that um, he picks the priests. The priests don't pick themselves, right? They have, to be, they have to be appointed or called by God. And I think this is a little bit difficult for us, um, not so much inside the church, but definitely outside of the church, because I think we, we just, we don't really have much of a concept of a divine vocation anymore. We sometimes will talk about like, well, God has, you know, the evangelicals love to talk about God laying it on your heart. And uh, we could get into that too. 
Um, but I think oftentimes people will, they have this sense of a supernatural calling. Like they might see a monk and say, oh, well, he's clearly a man of God, right? You know, I'm just trying to think of the man on the street. But to think more, but those are all very individualistic. To have a whole office, a whole um, station that is actually divinely appointed, I just don't think we think that way anymore. Um, because the Bible talks about lots of divinely appointed office, including, frankly, government. How many people think of actually uh, our officials as fulfilling a divinely uh, a divine appointment? But yet, there it is right there in Ro uh, Romans chapter 13. They have no authority other than the one given them by God. Um, now, that doesn't mean they can't abuse it, of course. But, um, but also, I mean, you know, marriage, you know, fatherhood, motherhood, those are divinely given things. And of course, the pastoral office as well. And, um, you know, I think I've, I've bumped into so many people who mean really, really well, but call themselves pastors. And yet they're the ones, they're all self, you know, they're self-appointed. They hung out their shingle and they said, you know, I went to Bible college. I'm going to go and get myself a, um, you know, a congregation. And they probably look at our, um, our practice of um, what we call retabocatus, meaning that, um, you know, that we follow the, uh, the proper order of the church and that the church calls. And when the church actually, um, picks a man, puts him into the office, that's actually the Lord himself doing it. And so the, the church is the instrument of the Lord. They probably, you know, uh, guys who appoint themselves as pastors probably look at us and say, well, you know, that's, that's old fuddy-duddy tradition stuff. But it really gets down to a really critical issue of legitimacy. You know, is my pastor really a pastor or not? And that, that is not a meaningless question, especially when you've got somebody, you know, who's, uh, who's, conscience is absolutely stricken and needs to know um, that you stand in the place of God and that your words are from him versus, or are you just like some crazy street preacher who decided to get up one morning and said, I'm appointed by God. And so anyway, I know that's a little bit of a diatribe. We can go back to that if you want. But, but once again, that's the point that's being made about the priesthood. You can't take it for yourself. And we got examples in the Old Testament, right? That, um, of where people did try to do that, most famously Korah's rebellion. And if I remember, Korah himself was a Levite, not a, not from the tribe of Aaron, or not from the tribe of Levi, but not from the family of Aaron. Um, and if you remember, uh, he and some of his buddies all said, hey, listen, Aaron, you got too big of a head on yourself. We're going to be, we can all be priests because um, we're just as good as you are. And Aaron just like slowly backs away. <laughs> and God says, all right, fine, we can all put this to a test. And you remember what happens to them. They all get destroyed because they tried to take upon themselves something that only God can give. And, uh, and of course, we're going to see that the main point of that in a second is that Jesus, even Jesus himself doesn't take it up. He's appointed by the Father himself, but getting ahead of myself. All right, no, Tim. And, all right. And, that, sorry, I gave, I just dumped a lot of stuff on you. Anything you want to comment on? That's good. Well, let's, let's pick up some of those thoughts about, about legitimacy. And I would think certainty as well. Let's pick right. those up more on the other side of the break. Okay. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jeremiah Johnson this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. 
and its faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 12th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 4, the fact that no one makes himself a priest, but rather God is the one who appoints, God is the one who calls. Now, you were talking about the importance of the legitimacy of the priesthood with that, and I think also, it matters with the certainty of the priesthood. I think you, you, were, you were going there already. Right. You, you can know that this guy really is the priest, and you can be certain then that, and, and thinking about it in terms of Leviticus, you can be certain that the sacrifices that he offers are going to be acceptable to God, and they will actually atone for your sins. And as you said, when we think about that today, especially in relationship to the pastoral office, that's huge, because we want to know that the guy that we're going to does speak for God, and that like, we can have that certainty. I think not only the legitimacy, but the certainty that's attached to it is a big part of this conversation. Right, and they, they inevitably go hand in hand. I mean, you can, you can think of a couple of good examples, I think, that really illustrate the, the vital importance of these, because th- those words make it sound so abstract and maybe so sure. theoretical. Um, but, I mean, you know, let's say... Um, uh, I don't know. Well, let's actually, let's actually give a more secular example, right? Um, you know, you're going to you're going for a housing loan, right? And um, uh, and uh, and you want to make sure, and you've got everything all lined up, and all of a sudden you find out that this guy's license has lapsed, right? I mean, this is a terrifying thing to know that he does not actually have the authority to write this loan. You're going to go to closing, and you don't know what you're going to do, right? Um, and so, but also on the flip side, when something is tremendously good, you can only believe it if you actually know that the, the person is authorized to, to do so, right? I mean, it, it goes back to, it really plays on, uh, the only reason why that old um, uh, ad worked, if you remember, what was it from, uh, uh, Holiday Inn Express, right? You know, like the guys like performing complex surgery and, uh, and he said, are you a doctor? No, but I did say at Holiday Inn Express last night, right? I mean, it's all hilarious. <laughs> Because we know how important it is for him to be legitimate, but now let's take it. Now let's take it even more seriously. Then into the uh, the pastoral office, you got somebody who comes in and they've made a total shipwreck of their life, and they confess to all kinds of, of uh, you know, of sins that that have been absolutely plaguing them. They um, they want desperately to know that uh, that God is not going to damn them for these things, but that those words of forgiveness are real and they're not just like some guy giving you your best wishes and hopes, right? He's not just sending you a vacuous card. He's actually speaking for God himself. I mean, that makes all the difference in the world. And, um, uh, you know, and if, so the legitimacy and the certainty always go hand in hand because it's a matter of, 
who is this person and do they have the authority to say what they're saying to me? Right. And so likewise with the priests, um, you know, you know, so, so Joe Israelite goes to, uh, to, to offer the sacrifice, you know, for the Passover with all the promises and all the associations made with that. He needs to know that this guy's really been put in the place to actually be offering that for him. Otherwise, you know, it's all a sham. Yeah, that's right. So, so how do you know? I mean, that way you don't end up with Korah or, right. or even from the book of Leviticus, you don't end up with Nadab and Abihu and their unauthorized right. fire. Right. You, and, you, and remember, they were even legitimate priests yes. and they were just offering um, they were just offering it in a way that the Lord had not specified. So, right. yeah. Right. Well, and so then when it comes to the question of, of Jesus, which is where the author of Hebrews is going to take us, like, how do we know that he's the guy? How, how do we know that he's not some... You know, up and comer. I think through right. some of the examples, like in the book of Acts, where they're they're talking about some of the people that led a rebellion, but they passed away. How right. do we know that that's n- that Jesus isn't just one of those guys that yeah. raised a ruckus for a while, but he's really just doing this on his own? To know that Jesus is the one who's been put in this position by God, not of his. It's not Jesus' own authority, but it's the Father's authority becomes a central question to both the legitimacy of, of Jesus as the Savior and the certainty that we can have in him as our Savior. Right. And thankfully, the Gospels answer that like 20 times. I mean, probably the most obvious one that jumps to my mind is Jesus' own baptism, where the right. Father himself speaks from heaven and says, this is my Son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. That's not just saying like, hey, he's my favorite, but that he's what he's doing is he's giving testimony to Jesus's own divinely appointed mission. And we can go from there saying, we know that what Jesus is doing is indeed the Father's will. And of course, there's lots of much more subtle things that we see all over the place, um, you know, from like the entire prologue of John or in, you know, my personal favorite gospel, just because I studied the most Matthew, we see, for example, like when, um, uh, when Jesus fulfills all those Old Testament prophecies, uh, out of Egypt, I have called my son. That for him to be called the son implies the authority of what he is doing on his father's behalf. And so, you know, his kingship, his role, uh, even the angel who says to, uh, to Joseph, right? Um, you know, why are you going to call him Jesus? Even his name testifies to his divinely given role. He will save his people from their sins. And once again, it's not like Jesus named himself. He's getting, it's a divine name granted to him by the Father. So at every step, we see the Father confirming um, that, yes, this is my son. This is his mission. Yes, he's authorized to do it. So yes, and this is the key thing. So yes, you can trust what he says and does. That's right. That's right. So this is the point that the author of Hebrews picks up right away as he starts the transition to who Christ is as high priest. So in verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So we've got that quotation from Psalm 2, which showed up earlier in this same letter. How does it get used here? What's going on in verse 5? Yeah, I, th- I think this is both kind of funny and brilliant, not shocking, and it's brilliant. Because it doesn't say, you know, he doesn't quote the Psalms where it says, you know, you are my high priest today, I have appointed you, right? I mean, because that would be the, the more obvious thing we would expect. He says, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Um, but what that really is doing is, um, you know, when Jesus is born, when Jesus actually is, uh, you know, um, 
you know, as he has declared the son, he's also declared a priest. Um, and so, I mean, that's what he's having us fill the, uh, you know, fill in the blanks. And, um, but, but even more than that, you might say, to be the son is to be the heir. And along with that comes all the authority and power, um, you know, that we kind of see, I think we, this is almost like the flip side of when um, Jesus says at the very, uh, you know, right before his ascension, all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. And there is a, there's a very real sense in which he has granted that, um, you know, through his, uh, through his actual, uh, you know, earthly work and ministry. But once again, it's granted to him by the father that Jesus is not a self-appointed individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, or I should say, self-appointed priest. Right. So, I mean, uh, Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 come to mind that Jesus doesn't oh, sure. consider this equality with God a thing to be grasped or stolen, but rather he humbles himself, which is where this, this reading is headed. So he, right. he submits himself to the Father's will and lets the Father be the one to bestow this upon him. The, the quotation from Psalm 2, I think, is, is important as the, the flow of this sermon has gone. Because you, you see, once again, the connection between the, the royalty, the, the kingdom that Jesus has, as well as the priesthood. Those two offices right. are being combined in Christ. Uh, that's a really big point within this, this letter as a right. whole. Oh, we're really going to see that here in the next verse. Maybe we should move on to that. Sure. Right now. Go ahead. We mentioned Melchizedek. So. Yeah, so tell us all about—well, you don't have to tell us all about Melchizedek. <laughs> well, you just get the mention here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I do, I do get—it is the first mention, though, in Hebrews. Right. And I mean, it's kind of, once again— I mean, just as a, as a quick aside, it's passages like these that remind me that, um, like, how do I put this? Like, I'm glad I'm not, like, the final interpreter of the Bible because, frankly, I wouldn't have put all these connections together. Because, I mean, here's this guy, Melchizedek, is mentioned twice, just twice in the whole Old Testament. Um, and yet, you know, um, here he becomes this really significant point you know, the seemingly minor character becomes this really significant point in the priesthood of Jesus and, uh, you know, in our understanding of, of how he stands as a mediator in our place to, uh, to save us from our, from our sins. And so, you know, just, so just for anybody who doesn't remember Melchizedek, he's, uh, he's mentioned back in, um, in Genesis 10, or no, not 10, uh, he's back mentioned 18 or whatever it is. I think it's 14. Um, 14. I, I was getting close. I just split the difference. It's in Genesis uh, but anyway, it's in, in it's in the aftermath. If you remember, Lot gets um, uh, taken captive by this uh, 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 by these kings. Um, Kedileomer is one of the uh, the I think the significant guys, and so Abraham gets his own personal army, goes rescues Lot, he brings back his whole family, and then after that happens, um, Abraham offers sacrifices. Um, he offers a tithe to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek acts as a priest on his behalf. And Melchizedek, uh, to your point earlier, is is the uh, king of Salem, but also the priest of God Most High. So he is what uh, you know, one and the same thing, both king and priest. And uh, now we're going to get a lot more of this in chapter seven. So I have to, I'm going to let whoever's going to talk about chapter seven take uh, take that. But it's it's enough for us to mention that there's two important points about Melchizedek. First of all. Um, that he is not of the line of Aaron. And so once again, it's a differentiation that whereas Aaron, um, you know, Aaron has X, Y, and Z about him, Jesus isn't those things because he's from a different order, right? Um, and, uh, but also that because, um, because Aaron is uh, mortal, um, 
that Jesus is going to be, uh, well, the opposite of that. His, uh, Aaron's priesthood was temporal. Jesus's priesthood is eternal. And that's, uh, and that follows Melchizedek. And, um, and I, I won't let all the cat out of the bag in that. That's way, good. So that's, that's fine. Yeah. So, yeah. so between, between now and next week, which is when we'll be in Hebrews chapter seven, read up on Genesis 14, Remember what happened with Melchizedek. Yeah. It's not even that long. Be, so. No, it's not. It's not that long. And then and you mentioned it, Melchizedek shows up in another place in the Old Testament, which is the, right. the quotation we've got here, mm-hmm. and it's from Psalm 110. This is Psalm 110, verse 4, that he's quoting from. And I think just the fact that he's quoting from Psalm 110 is significant, because that's a really key psalm for the entire New Testament when it comes to, to who Jesus is, especially the first verse. Which is, is one that Jesus points out to the to his opponents during Holy Week. Right. How how can David say, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? So the the fact that we're in that same territory, again with the mention of Melchizedek, I think is significant. Oh, absolutely. And if I remember correctly, I think Psalm one ten is the most quoted um, psalm in the entire New Testament. And and every time it's quoted, it's like, hey, it's about Jesus. And so if there were ever a psalm that we say, you know, Hey, folks! This is really about Christ. Um, you know, th- this is this is definitely it, and and so it the 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 broader context of all these quotations from Psalm one ten really invite us to say, well, of course, this is really actually about Christ. Um, so who is the you? This is of course Christ, who is the uh, the you, and once again, he's the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And once again, going back to this idea of how comforting the Book of Hebrews is, especially to people who may be in uh, peril or even persecution, um, you know, the, I think this question becomes essential that, in other words, um, is there an expiration date on, um, on this? You're like, you know, there's, is my warranty going to expire, right? Are my sins truly taken care of for all time? Because listen, the guy who keeps taking care of it, right? You probably had this happen before. Uh, before, you know, you get used to dealing with one person at, at a, um, you know, at a, at a store or something like that. And eventually they like, they either, they, they move on or they retire or they die, un- uh, unfortunately. And then you got to like, you got to learn somebody new. Like, well, what about the priesthood? Well, good, good news. This priesthood, uh, you know, this new high priest, um, his term is forever. And so when he says it, it's never going to be superseded by any, any new priests, because he's it. He's the whole shebang. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just to think about these verses, as you said, the you, that's, that's Christ, and it's the Father who's speaking. So here right. in, these, in these two passages that are quoted, you hear the Father speaking to his Son, and, and going back to the very beginning of this letter, it is through this Son that God has now spoken to you in these last days. So again, there's that certainty. God's not going to, to change this word He's spoken to this, to you through this Son, that He has appointed to be your High Priest eternally. All of this again, huge comfort for us. Oh, absolutely. So let's let's uh, let's keep working through the, this this text then. So in in verse seven, then talking more about Jesus as a priest, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So we've talked about Jesus, or we've heard about the priestly work of sacrifices. Now we hear also about the priestly work of prayers. Uh, what's going on with Jesus as a priest here in verse 7? Right. Um, 
you know, this is, it's hard to say exactly what this is referring to because we can think of any number of times that he's offered up uh, uh, prayers, especially on behalf of other, you know, especially on behalf of other people. You know, he he himself, when the uh, the disciples came and said, you know, hey, how should we pray? And Jesus says, pray like this. So, so he, he offers them uh, this prayer. But then also you might, you think of, for example, the the one which we've titled the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where he literally prays on behalf of the disciples to the father. And, you know, that they'd be protected, that they would be delivered from the evil one and all these, all these other things. And so these are all really great exemplars, but I think especially with the, uh, the statement, let me look at that again, uh, to him who is able to save him from death with loud cries and tears, especially the tears I can't, I can't help but think of the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' cry from the cross. And I don't think it's exclusive to those, but it, you can't, it's got to include those. And of course, you know, as he's, uh, as he's praying um, in, the, in the garden, think about this. The father who himself, who has appointed Jesus and given him this divine mission, he's praying about that divine mission as much as he knows it's going to kill him and that that um, according to his human flesh, he is, I wouldn't say resisting it, but I mean, he, you know, he's, he's in great anxiety. He says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet, what does he say? Not my will, but thy will be done. He is truly the high priest who does the Father's will, who, who has actually appointed him. Um, but, but we also remember, who is that cup for? It's for us. He's praying a priestly prayer there in the garden because he's really praying um, for the very thing that he's going to be doing on our behalf. Um, and then I think likewise, then from the cry of the cross with loud tear, cries and tears, um, you know, I mean, it could be any number of his words from the cross. I especially think, for example, of uh, where he says, into your hands, I commend my, uh, my spirit. He cries out to the one who can you know, who can save him from death. Here he is, and I think this is where we start to see um, maybe at least, you might say poetically, the conflation of Jesus as priest and Jesus as sacrifice all at the same time. Because here he is, um, he's, on the one hand, he's just said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, right? A, A very priestly thing to do. But then he also says, um, Father, into your hand I commend my spirit, as he himself in his flesh is being offered up for the uh, the sins of the world. He cries out to the one who can save him from death. And of course, there's probably lots of other thoughts to maybe associate with uh, Isaac and Abraham and lots of other places to go, but we don't have all day. Sure. No, and I think just to see Jesus in his priestly activity in praying, exactly when, I mean, I think the, the connections that you're making, especially to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday are, are right on. I think the liturgical context of this text showing up on Good Friday reinforces that thought. Uh, but even then, just his entire ministry, you, you know, you see Jesus at various points praying in his ministry, and later in this epistle, we're going to hear that, that Jesus still lives to make intercession. Right. So this, this matter that Jesus is praying, and he's praying for us, is a, really a significant aspect of who he is as our high priest and his ministry as our Savior. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought that up, because I think we sometimes forget that Jesus is still praying for us. In other words, that's part of his ministry that may that is never finished, right? Well, at least I'm, I don't know, I guess I probably shouldn't. I just said that. I hadn't thought about it, though. But d- does it end when when the new creation comes? Does he still have to pray for us? I don't. I don't know. 
but he still continues to do it today. That's my point. Um, right. And so that's, that's what I'm sticking with. Um, yeah, that's right. that's right. But then I want to make a real quick comment, though. Uh, save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Mm. Um, you know, the, the word there that gets translated as reverence is sometimes translated as godly fear, although I'm not sure that's the best one either. But it's also, um, I think there's another way of, it, it doesn't actually have the root word for fear in it. Um, I think it ha it's, um, I think it also can be treated as godly obedience. But what I really see this once again is going back to Monday Thursday, where he says, not my will, but thy will be done, where he actually fulfills the father's will. I think that is really what's exemplifying this reverence. Not that Jesus like has the right prayer position, but he's simply doing the will of the father and subjecting his own will to his father's will. So. Yeah. 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 Now, now keep keep going in this text because, as I mentioned, this is a text that shows up on Good Friday in the three year lectionary, and, and every year that I read it, I, I'm concerned that people maybe don't quite understand what is being said. So, verses eight and following. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What's this thought about Jesus learning obedience, and especially then? as the ESV translates, being made perfect. What's yeah, these are really important. So I think this whole, I, I think this whole section, but especially these two verses, really highlight a bit of, I'm, I can't think of a better word than tension, but it's really a tension because I think we haven't thought through very well uh, between Jesus's humanity and his divinity. And maybe I should say juxtaposition may be a better word for it. Um, because we often think of, we, I think we buy our default mode of thinking about Jesus is just as the son of God. And we don't tend to think as nearly as much about him according to his humanity. Um, and, um, and so the idea, this idea of him learning obedience seems very strange, right? But he actually, for example, learned how to speak as a child, right? He actually, um, you know, we see even in the short examples of him growing, um, and it talks about him, you know, in that classic uh, scene with him in the temple with the religious leaders that he is teaching them and he's listening to them. You know, uh, Jesus himself, according to his humanity, also had, you know, he learned the word of God. I wouldn't say quite exactly the same way we do because we're not the son of God. But, but, um, and so these, these thoughts about him learning obedience and, and also this being made perfect, that sounds really weird to us because I think what we usually think of is like sinless perfection. Wait a minute, isn't Jesus already uh, uh, sinless? Couldn't, you know, how could he be made perfect? This one really needs a little bit of explanation um, because perfect probably isn't the best translation. It's really more of a sense of completion. Uh, for all the geeks out there, the, uh, it's just from uh, teleo, which means to, to bring to fruition, to bring to its end, to bring to its completion. And, um, and the idea here is not so much perfection as in sinlessness, but perfection as in the, you know, he's finally reached his end goal. And this is still in some ways a little bit challenging for us in the sense that, um, but it's not, it's not nearly as bad that when Jesus is born, he has not completely finished it, all of his work. The, the father has work for him to do. It's a road he must walk. It's not like Jesus comes, you know, like right straight out of the thigh of Zeus, right? Um, you know, com you know, completely, um, and fully done with all of it. He actually comes to do something which he, um, which we should not take as, how would I put this? Play acting, right? Jesus doesn't play act his earthly ministry. When he's tempted, he's really tempted. It's not just a show. 
Um, and when, you know, when he, um, when he is grieved, he really is grieved. It's not for show. And likewise, so all of his ministry, you know, it's not like he's up there on the cross. This was, of course, another ancient heresy, which we could talk about, but that's not the point that, um, Jesus really was suffering. It wasn't just the appearance of suffering. Um, and so likewise, Jesus really does complete his work. It's not like it wasn't complete when he was born. It's complete when he suffered, dies, and rises again. And he is, uh, you know, and he does all of what the Father has given him to do. And yeah. so, you know, well, anyway. Well, so maybe then with the, the thought of being made perfect, as, as you pointed out, the connection to the, the word telos or end, which is the, the word that Jesus speaks from the cross in John 19, it right. is finished. Maybe the way to understand that part of verse 9 is, and this is a, a loose translation of it, but something to the effect of, and being brought to the finish line, sure, he became the source of you, so that you make that connection to the, the end of his, the goal of his ministry. Right. So being brought even, to Good Friday and Easter. Or completing all things, or something like that, yeah. 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 So, and and that is then why, and then it becomes very comforting. He's the source of eternal salvation because he did that. Yeah. It is through this suffering and resurrection. Right. And it brings us back full circle to the the problem of the Aaronic priesthood that it was never done. Right. Um, there was always another sacrifice to make because there, there was always something more to do. And, uh, and and as I think it's the writer of Hebrews will later remind us that it never really could have finished it. Only Jesus can complete it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you can see how, how this section of chapter 5 then really is setting the stage for so much that is yet to come in this epistle. With, with just about a minute left here, Pastor Johnson, help us to wrap things up. We've said quite a bit. Maybe the place to wrap up is, is to put the you know, give us that comfort again so that we don't just leave this all theoretical. We've, we've traced some, some pretty uh, obscure Old Testament references at times. Right. Uh, give us the comfort from this section of Hebrews chapter 5 as we wrap up. Right. It, we do well just to, to go all the way back to what is a priest? Why, why is a priest doing what a priest is doing? It's because we're alienated from God. That's the fundamental thing. And that, that a priest is God's appointed representative to uh, to be the mediator to bring us back and all of those priests um they were indeed doing god's will in the old testament but they could never complete what they were really foreshadowing to begin with and that of course is christ and christ himself as you know god and man um he came both from us as you know according to his human nature um but he comes to uh to to offer himself as a sacrifice and to fulfill all that the priest was going to do as a mediator so that so that we would be brought back to God. That's ultimately what, you know, what all of this is pointing to again. And Jesus is the one to do it because no number of, you know, of, of goats and bulls could have ever done it, but only the high priest himself who strangely offers himself as a sacrifice. And we never have to doubt that uh, we never have to doubt that, that he was really the guy to do it because the Father says so. And we don't ever have to doubt whether or not he's done enough because his work brings to completion all that was incomplete before him. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the book of Hebrews, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you.